morning. It is good to see you here at Bergen Park Church in 2018. I know it's uh, too late to say Happy New Year, right? You got that guy at work just always saying Happy New Year? No? No, it doesn't happen. Hey, it's good to see you here. Uh, we're walking through the book of 1 Peter. If you're new to Grace Covenant Church, my name is Jason. I'm one of the elders. Uh, my response I'd like to let you know I am new to Bergen Park Church, and I may not even know where I am, but see, that's why my wife is here. She'll always tell me, you know, after the service, she's like, do you realize what you said? I'm like, no, I have no idea. So just as God gives you grace, uh, hopefully today you can, you can give me a little grace, uh, but it's good to see you. Hey, as we were saying, um, <laughs> a couple things I want to share with you. One is to, as we're going through 1 Peter, uh, I hope you'll start jumping into the Scripture maybe when you get home or, or maybe as you're, you're driving to work and there's some great Bible apps, you can actually just listen to Scripture. Uh, you don't have to necessarily just read, but you can hear it. And as you hear it, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so the more we start listening to what God is saying, the more that starts to resonate, you know what I mean, in your heart, just like a song does. You hear a new song on the radio, you kind of get a couple words here and there, a couple phrases, but the more you listen to it, the more it starts to permeate and kind of settle, and then you find yourself singing it, right? You with me? And you got that weird song in your head all day long? Well, Scripture kind of works that way too. When you listen to it, it's not weird, but when you listen to it, it permeates, and you start to carry that word throughout the day. And so I encourage you to jump into First Peter. And then also, as we mentioned earlier, Sydney uh, talked about getting connected in community. And there's a couple places right now that you can actually jump in today and find a place to get into the Word of God, to get into community, and then have a place to grow together with others. One is on Mondays and on Fridays. We have Bible Study Fellowship. Bible Study Fellowship is an opportunity to walk through Scripture. Right now they're going through the book of Romans. And so if you want to come on Monday night, the men meet here at Bergen Park Church. And then the women meet on Friday morning as well. And so that's a great opportunity. And also from 8.15 to 9.15, there is a Sunday school class that meets over on the side. They walk through the, uh, I think they're in Thessalonians. Is that where you are? Bob, no? What's that? Daniel. Wow. Hey, that's great. So Old Testament. I, I've missed it the last couple of weeks. And so that's another opportunity to get connected. Uh, so again, good to see you guys here. So if you want to take out your Bible, we're going through 1 Peter. And again, the reason we chose to, to go through 1 Peter, and as I was praying, as 2018 was coming, okay, God, what do you want us to teach us? What do you want to, where do you want us to go? Uh, 1 Peter helps us to know what it looks like to live out our faith in genuine ways, really in a community that may not be open to the gospel or may in some ways be hostile to Christianity. You know, often I'll hear this uh, from maybe atheists or non-believers. They'll say, you know, there's a challenge that I have with Christianity. How can God be good? How can you say that God is good or God is merciful, and yet I see so much suffering in the world, and not only just in the world in general, but I see suffering in my life and in the lives of people that I love, maybe 
my parents or people in my family, I've seen how they suffered and they've been tremendously faithful to God. How can you say God is good? And yet on the other hand, we see so much pain and suffering in the world. How can a good God allow these things to happen? And sometimes I think as modern people, we think we're the first to come up with that question. It's like, you know, the New Testament writers had no idea, you know, they had no idea about this objection. And yet in 1 Peter, you have to understand that Peter is writing to a community of people who are suffering at a level and are going through an experience that if we had gone through or if we had known people that had gone through, we would see it as absolutely horrific. And yet in the midst of the suffering that Peter is going through and the early church is going through, what Peter points to is not to complain or to mumble or even to question the goodness of God. Rather, what they find is this rejoicing joy and hope, which to me seems kind of disconnected from life, because how can you have joy? How can you rejoice when everything's going wrong? I mean, I would think if I really trusted in God, God should make everything good. Because if I've given my life to Him, if I'm serving Him, He should make the path straight. And yet, what Peter's going to show us in 1 Peter is that the more we trust Him in our sorrows and in our pain and in our suffering, the more real God becomes in our life. And listen, if He's real in your suffering... He's going to show up in your life and the people around you are going to find that there's something unique about Bergen Park Church. There's something unique about you because you are someone that follows Jesus. And in following Jesus, people will begin to see a wisdom in the gospel and in Christianity. And so again, Peter is talking to a community who is suffering and suffering tremendously. And in fact, there is a historian named Tacitus that wrote about the suffering that these early Christians went through. And he wrote this early history called the Annals of the Jews, and, and in it he describes what the early church was experiencing, and he describes it this way. He says that neither human assistance in the shape of imperial gifts nor attempts to appease the gods could remove the sinister report that the fire was due to Nero's own orders. Now let me explain what he's saying. In 64 AD, I'm sure you guys remember 64 AD, an important year, July 19, 64 AD, this fire ravaged the city of Rome. And Rome in many places was simply built out of wood and the streets were very, very narrow. All those houses were built on top of each other. So when this fire began, it absolutely destroyed the city three days and three nights. And eventually they got it under control. Now, a couple of weeks later, a second fire breaks out. And that fire was worse than the first, and many people in the city of Rome started blaming the emperor, and his name was Nero. And they knew that Nero loved new things. You know, he loved the newest and the best, and his desire was to take some of those impoverished areas and wipe them out and start building, building his coliseums and his buildings. And so Tacitus is describing what happened in that period of time. And he goes on to say, And so, in the hope of dissipating the rumor, Nero falsely diverted the charge on who set the fire, to whom the vulgar came. He set the charge on those who were the vulgar, who were meaning the name of Christians, who were detested for their, their abominations that they persecuted, or um, not persecuted, perpetrated. I see in the early context of Christianity, many Christians were seen as really weird, strange, and odd. For the one reason, they believed in one God. And if you know anything about the Roman Empire, their economy was built on the gods. 
When you went into a city like Ephesus, you would see the gods. You'd go to the places where the gods were worshipped. That drove the economy of Rome. And here were these Christians who were claiming there's not many gods, there's one God, which wasn't simply a, a religious challenge. It was an economic challenge because everything in Rome was built on this concept of the gods. And not only that, many believed that Christians were cannibals because they had this weird practice where they would gather and consume the body and the blood of Jesus. And so Christians in that first early, early era of the first century were very easy targets. And so Nero says the fire was caused by these Christians. Tacitus goes on to say the founder of the sect was one Christus by name, had been executed by Pontius Pilate in the region of Tiberius, and the dangerous superstition though put down for the moment, broke out again, not only in Judea, the original home of the past, meaning Jesus, but even in Rome. He goes on to say, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. He's describing Christians covered with skin, skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished, or nailed to crosses, or doomed to the flames and burned, to, severe, to serve as nightly illuminations when daylight had expired. But Nero was pretty sadistic in his plan of torture. He would wrap Christians in the skins of animals, set them out in the fields, and allow their dogs to hunt them down. He would take Christians, wrap them in pitch, and set them on fire. And as these other Christians were being torn by the dogs, he would take these other Christians, put them on posts, and light up his garden so that everybody could see the carnage that was happening. Now, this was the life of Christians in that period in time. This is who Peter's writing to. And yet the place that he starts with them isn't just to simply commiserate, hey, I know things are bad. Rather, what he goes to is, is to remind them that we have a hope. And not just any kind of hope. He says, we have a living hope. Now, if I was going through that kind of experience, I'd want something more than that, Peter. Hey, listen, Peter, that's great. All that religious jar jargon about hope and a new birth and all that. What I want to know is that God is going to destroy these people. You know, he's going to wipe out the Romans. He knows the suffering I'm going through, and he is as angry at those people as I am at them. And yet, see, Peter, what he's doing as, as we start to walk through this book is he's not starting where you and I start, right? Because when you're angry at someone, there's this vengeance that begins to well up inside, even if it's as simple as somebody taking something from you that you deserve. Hey, maybe it was that job opportunity. I deserved the promotion. Everybody knew it. And yet he got it because, or she got it because of the relationship that they had to the boss. And that kind of vengeance swells in your heart. Or maybe what your neighbor had done to you last year or this year, there's that vengeance that swells in the heart. Well, you know, peace cannot be accomplished in the world, where, where our hearts constantly go to vengeance. Instead, in the gospel, we have a story of a God that didn't seek vengeance on those who were guilty. Rather, a God, instead of seeking vengeance on us, He gave us mercy, forgiveness, and He gave us what He Himself deserved, which is peace and fellowship with God. And so as we jump in into verse 3, Paul's, uh, Peter's describing this reality, and he begins with mercy. And he says, as we go through suffering, there's three things that we need to hold on to. We need to hold on to the mercy of God. 
We need to hold on to the life that God's given us. He calls it the new birth. And then he says, he's given us a living hope. So notice this, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That as everything was going to heck, here's Peter, and what's on his lips are the words of praise. Father, praise you. As I see the carnage around me, I bless you, Father. And here's why. Because according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where Peter goes is mercy. And I'll tell you why. Because mercy had a greater grip on his heart than fear. Listen to that. Mercy had a greater grip on his heart than fear. Your heart's going to run to what it wants to run to. And whatever's the biggest in your life, whatever has glory, whatever's greatest, your heart's going to go there. And what Peter realized is the only reason I have salvation is the mercy of God. That salvation is entirely of God's mercy and His mercy alone. Because here's the reality Peter understood is he knows that what he deserved was death. He didn't deserve to be accepted or forgiven. He didn't deserve an inheritance in heaven that's kept for him. He didn't deserve Christ to come. He didn't deserve the Holy Spirit. Rather, what Peter realized is that what the gospel teaches is that as sinners, we deserve the punishment and the wrath of God. Because it's not God that's rebelled against us. It's God that's given us everything, and yet we turn our backs on Him. And then we turn around, and the gifts He's given us, we use to make a name for ourselves and to cause other people who are created in the image of God to be lesser in our sight simply because of what I make or what I have or what I look like. And yet he realizes that salvation is of mercy and mercy alone. Which means, listen, in your suffering, God has already taken care of your greatest need. In your suffering, God has already met your greatest need. He has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to give us life. And see, that's what Peter's going to in his heart. Now, in his life, I mean, there is fear. There's, there's natural fear when, you're, when your life is in jeopardy. And yet in his heart and his mind, he knows he has to run to a firm foundation. He has to go to the mercy of God. Church, see, listen, it's so easy to run to vengeance and anger. We know how to do that, right? Some of us know how to do that really well. You've had 50, 60, 40, 30, whatever years to practice. But see, if we're going to live as the disciples of Jesus Christ in a world that is not favorable to Christianity, we have to teach our hearts to run to mercy. Meaning, God's mercy for us. God has already met your greatest need. And see, then he takes that and he says, because he's met your greatest need, and that's an objective, objective reality, he says there's this objective truth is that we have been born again into a living hope. Now think about it. What is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? just had to summarize. It's not that Christians are better people. We're not. There's a lot of great non-Christians. I mean, Gandhi was a pretty good dude. You know, when you think of somebody who was immoral, somebody who was self-sacrificing, and Gandhi loved the teachings of Jesus, but Gandhi was not a Christian. So what is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? It's not morality. It's not ethics. It's not that we're somehow better people. It's that we're alive to God. 
See, Christianity isn't about what we do. It's not about the life that we change. It's about what God has done to make us alive in Christ. You know, Paul says, in our transgressions and sins, we were dead. And dead men can't live. They can't walk. They can't get themselves up. But God in His mercy has given us new life, which means when we trust in the gospel, the truth of Christianity is the Holy Spirit comes in and makes us alive to God. Ezekiel says in the Old Testament that God will give us a new heart. Now, what's the new heart? It's a desire to obey God. Paul says later in Romans that the heart, the Holy Spirit will cry out, Abba, Father. That if you're someone that desires to know God as Father, that's evidence of the new birth in your life. If you're someone today that had a terrible week, you with me? And you thought this morning, I can't go to church. You know what that is? That's conviction. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit that you belong to God. See, often... Often what we do is we kind of look at life and we don't see the evidence of that new birth. And what Peter is saying is even though you're afraid, even though what the challenges you're going through cause you to question God, realize the life of God is at work within you. You have been born again into a, finally he says, a living hope. Which means a hope that no one can touch. You know, often when we think of hope, we think of something that may happen, but we have no certainty that it will happen. You know, I hope that I'll get that raise. I hope that I'll marry that girl. And I hope that things are going to go well in life, but I have no certainty that the outcome is going to be what I want. That's hope in our context today. But see, the hope that Peter describes is a future certainty. It's not a hope of wishful thinking. He says, we have a living hope. Now, why does he call it living? Because there is one who died, but he rose again. And the one who died and rose again is at the right hand of the Father. He is living and well. He is Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Our hope is in Christ. You know the song, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Meaning, sweetest frame, there's a lot of things in life that are sweet. And they may even have a sweet frame. They may look good. But in the end, it's the hope we have in Christ that enables us to endure. See, as we go through the challenges of life, what Peter's directing us to is to the gospel. He's directing us to the old story of what Christ has done. He's saying, this is where mercy is found. This is where comfort is found. This is where hope is found. And this is what's going to enable you to the challenges we experience in life to live in a way that causes a community like Evergreen to say, you know what? There's something to Christianity. I may not agree with them, but I see a power, I see a joy, and I see a hope in their life that I do not see anywhere else. Church, this community that Peter is speaking to is going through tremendous suffering. And yet what he anchors them in is the hope we have through Christ. And so he tells us mercy, new birth, living hope. And then I love how he anchors it. He says it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That you may ask the question, why do we believe these things? Now, some people say it's just wishful thinking, but see what Peter is telling us, it's grounded in the resurrection. You know, Christianity isn't really about Christmas. I know we love Christmas, right? And I don't want to speak against Christmas. We love Christmas, but Christianity is not about, it's not about Christmas. It's about the resurrection. Because if Jesus came, but he, 
He didn't come back to life. It's not even about Good Friday. Though we celebrate Good Friday, what Christianity is nailed down to is the resurrection of Jesus. It's an objective, historic reality that we point back to. Now see, the reason we obey the New Testament isn't because we agree with what it says. hate to let you know. I'll tell you, my flesh very often disagrees with the Bible. When there's moments that I'm angry, I do not want to be humbled, and I do not want to admit I'm wrong. That may be a surprise to you. I mean, I know all of you love to admit when you've done the wrong thing. I don't. I have a very hard time admitting just how prideful I can be. But you know what Scripture constantly says? God is opposing you, Jason, when you are proud. But if you humble yourself, you just admit, all right, my heart's in the wrong place. I want what I want for myself. God's grace is going to be poured out to you. And see, Christianity is nailed down in this idea of the resurrection, that Jesus Christ is alive. He's, he's come back from the grave. And it's, it's built in this, this historic reality of what Christ has done. And because of that, he tells us in verse 4, we now have an inheritance. An inheritance he calls imperishable. I love this, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Because listen, all the inheritance we could possibly get, it's going to fade away. You know, you always want that big payday. You kind of dream. I don't know if you have, I have. If I won the lottery... Or when this comes, this is how great things are going to be. And the story of humanity is the same story. Once that payday comes, once the inheritance comes in, it just doesn't satisfy to the same extent. And then you see those people living these lives. And you think, isn't this what you wanted? This is the hope that you built this business for. It's why you got married. It's why you did the things that you did. And now that that hope has come, it doesn't satisfy. And yet what Peter describes is the inheritance that Christ has given us. And listen, the inheritance isn't heaven. Because Jesus didn't come to get you to heaven. Jesus came to get you to God. And what heaven is, is actually in Revelation, it's not a place that we go to, it's a place that comes down to us. That one day, the new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven and everything that is wrong will be made right. And he's saying that day is coming, but here's the beauty. Heaven is already in you. Heaven is already in us in that we have been born again into a living hope, that Christ dwells in us. And the greatest mystery, Paul says, is in Colossians, is that Christ is in you. And listen, that is the hope of glory. See, as we go through the challenges of life, what are we going to run to for hope? Paul's trying to anchor us in Jesus and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on, if you look in verse 5, and he describes who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Now notice who are guarded by faith. If you've got a bully in your life, you want a guardian, don't you? Hey, listen, when I was in junior high, I went to private school for a number of years, and then I, I kind of went back into the public school in ninth grade. And there was this girl that liked me. And I thought that was great until I realized that the guy that liked her was the quarterback of the football team. And you don't want that guy against you. And he didn't like me. And so he turned against me. And even though I'm new in the school, you know, he was after me. And he let me know. I remember he came to me in the library. You know, he's a lot bigger than me. I was about 140 pounds soaking wet. 
6'1", same height, tiny, right? And he's this big guy. And he said, Jason, uh, after school today, I'm going to, I won't say what he said, but <laughs> you, you've been there. Well, there's this other guy named Adrian. Adrian was about 6'6", and probably 250 pounds. Big African-American gentleman. For some reason, he liked me. Praise God. <laughs> Adrian went up to this other guy's name was Chris and said, listen, why don't you just leave him alone? I felt great. <laughs> I mean, that was like a moment of liberation. I had a guardian. I had Adrian who would stand up for me. And even though Chris would still kind of mess with me, he kind of say, I'm going to get you, but he always knew I had Adrian who was going to protect me. Well, listen to what Paul's, uh, Peter's saying. He's saying we have a guardian. We have one who protects us. It is God the Father. But notice the strength that God gives us in protecting us, it only comes as we are exercising faith. Who through faith, he says. You notice that? Who through faith are shielded by God's power. Meaning that we won't feel protected if we're not walking by faith. If you're just walking according to whatever makes sense to you and running towards different things in life to give you hope, he's saying you're not going to feel the protection of God. You're going to feel pretty vulnerable. And therefore, the things of the world, the hopes that we run to in the world, they're going to look a whole lot more attractive. You're going to feel as if God's abandoned you. But he's saying as we walk by faith, and what's faith? I'll tell you, faith is not just kind of pushing uh, your struggles aside, pushing your feelings aside. It's taking all those concerns you have, all the objections you have, all the fear, and putting it right alongside the gospel and Jesus Christ and saying, Father, you've got to help me here. I believe, but help my unbelief. Because His power is not perfected in your perfection. His power is not perfected when you get it right. His power is perfected in your weakness. So I will all the more gladly boast in what Christ has done. See, as we trust in faith in the dark hours, the dark moments in suffering and in fear, and we don't run to the hope of the world, God's power is present. And listen, He builds us up. And He's reminding these Christians. And then He gets to verse 6. And what He does in verse 6 is going to be incredibly helpful. And we're going to see this throughout this series is He's going to show us what we need to do and how we need to see the suffering and pain in life in a way that doesn't destroy us. It's okay. It gets better. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> I like it. It doesn't destroy us, but rather God refines us. Notice this. In this you rejoice, He says in verse 6. Now in what do we rejoice? In the new hope, the living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all that good stuff. We rejoice in it. And yet, notice... Though now for a little while, if necessary, you're grieved by various trials. How many people do you know rejoice in their grief? Have joy in their sorrow? He's saying that for the Christian community, though they have been absolutely wiped out, when you see them gathered together, they are going to sing and praise God with such a joy that is otherworldly. That even though we've taken everything from them, they've got nothing else. They don't have any jobs. They don't have a community. And yet, we cannot take away their joy. Even in their sorrow, there is rejoicing. That's unlike anything else, because what God does in our pain is He makes Himself more real. That's what He's saying. And actually, throughout 1 Peter, He'll talk about the fiery trials that we're going through as though something strange were happening to us. Now, why does He use fiery trials? Well, He actually describes it here because He says our faith is more imperishable than gold. Now, I'm no geologist, but I think gold has a long shelf life. 
But notice he's saying your faith in Christ is more permanent than gold. That even though gold has a long shelf life, when we trust in Christ, what God does in us is more permanent and more lasting. That through our trials, what He wants to do is to purify us. Now we may not like that, but you can understand the process. That when gold goes into the refiner's fire, what happens is the, pure, the impurities come to the surface. And what's left behind is pure. And he's saying as we go through trials, what God is doing is He's showing us the things that we're hoping in. As you go through trials in life, what's going to happen is God's going to start showing you the things that you're trusting in that are not Him. And you have a choice to make. You know, I can continue to trust in my own understanding or I can acknowledge Him, lean my weight on Him, look to the living hope, look to His mercy, and I can follow Him. What God wants to do in our suffering is to refine us, to purify us. Which is amazing, because listen, here it is. When you think of the hope that many people have in this world, what they're living for, it's going to escape. It's going to be something that they're not going to be... There's going to be a day where the hope that they're living for, they can't hold on to it. Because there's things like death and suffering and pain that external beauty is not going to overcome. Hey, you look good, okay? Bergen Park Church, you do. You guys look great. But if you live for aesthetics and beauty, if you live for physical appearance, a day is going to come where the hope that you're living for is going to be ripped from your soul. And you know what that's going to feel like is death. Or say many of you built businesses. What happens when the next guy takes over and he doesn't have the insights that you have? He has a lot of money so he could buy the company, but he didn't have the insight, he didn't have the knowledge, and he destroyed the thing. How did you feel? Felt as if this life was kind of ripped from your chest because that's what you put your life in. It was your hope. What happens in this world when suffering comes? I'll tell you what this world has to do is it has to ignore the suffering. Because suffering in this world never adds anything good. It's something to be avoided. It's why we have so many pills. Why do we run pills, church? Because it's a simple solution that will bring me comfort. But you know what it won't do? It won't change you. And you've seen that. All of us know the stories. You've seen two people that have gone through the exact same experience. Maybe they've lost a loved one. It could be a spouse. Maybe they've lost their job. They've lost a business opportunity. One person goes through that experience, and they come out the other side, and they are angry, bitter. They seem worse for having gone through the experience. And then there are those who go through an experience that are incredibly harsh, and yet they come out sweet, humble, more loving, more compassionate. Exact same experience. You know what the difference is? The difference is where they place their hope. The difference is where they place their hope, what they value. And if your hope is placed in God, if your hope is placed in the gospel in Jesus Christ, when you go through that, you come out stronger, more refined, more glorified, more beautiful than when it began. Why is God allowing suffering in your life? He's not allowing suffering in your life to say, I don't love you. Because if you notice, it says, if necessary. Did you notice that? He says, these trials have come if necessary. That Sometimes the things that happen to us are necessary. 
Now, we don't see them as necessary, and they're not things that we want to experience, but on the other side of that suffering, and you look back, you say, you know what, that was necessary. That was necessary. I I didn't want to go through it. And what happened was so painful and so difficult, but I see what God has now done in my life. I see the way He's redirected me. I see how I see life differently. I see how I see the people I love differently. And because of that, I see a now refining process in my life where I'm not who I was. Peter is sharing this with people that are going through tremendous suffering. He's saying there's hope. But listen, church, don't run to the low-hanging fruit of the world. There are things like pornography that look like it is comfort and it is joy, but it will kill you. There are things in this world that we see on the outside and we say, hey, this is what's going to provide joy and hope, but it's only for a moment and it's going to be, over time, it's going to fade away. But if we hold on to God through Jesus Christ, He becomes more real as we go through the experience. Do you hear what He's saying? We have a hope. And what God is doing in our suffering is He is refining and strengthening us. I I love this. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, said, Everything is necessary that He sends. Everything is necessary that He sends. Nothing can be necessary that He withholds. Everything is necessary that He sends. Nothing is necessary that He withholds. If God withholds it, it's not necessary. You know, we we worry because we don't think God's going to get it right. (laughs) Come on, let's be honest, right? Why do we worry? He's withholding something. But if I've got a living hope, what He's withholding, Jason, it's not necessary. Trust me. I am sufficient for you. See, it's in the midst of suffering that our faith gets real. And we discover if we really believe what we claim to believe. And so he goes on and he tells us that our faith is genuine when it is tested. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though perishes, though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may be found in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then listen, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. You know what that is evidence of is the new birth. That if you have never seen Jesus, and I imagine that includes all of us, and you love Him, that is a sign that you've been born of God. The human heart doesn't naturally love God, and certainly not the person of Jesus Christ. And he says, where there is love for God, there is hope. That's a sign that God has changed you. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. For you're obtaining the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As we go through suffering, what do we anchor our hope in? Three things, just quickly. We anchor our hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Second, we anchor our hope in the new birth, which means that God has come in and made me alive. Now, that's where you got to get into Scripture and see the evidence of what that new life looks like. And then finally, we're going to see this in verses 10 through 12. We anchor our hope in the Word of God. When you're going through suffering, you've got to anchor your hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know what Paul said about the resurrection? If it didn't happen, we're a bunch of fools. That's the paraphrase, all right? 1 Corinthians 15. You know, if you've got a, a linchpin argument that everything is built on, if you've got a, a fountain, you know, playing Jenga, and you got, you know, that one piece, right? You with me? No one plays Jenga? Okay. We're going to have to teach him about Jenga, Bryce. 
There's that one piece. You know, you pull it, the whole thing's falling down, right? Well, the whole argument of Christianity is built on the resurrection. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, hey, listen, if Christ hasn't risen from the grave, what are we doing? Let's go hike Bergen Peak. Let's get out of here. This is foolishness because we're still in our sins. We have no hope. Paul, who experienced the risen Christ, said, that's the linchpin of our argument. I, I don't believe in the sexual ethics of the Bible because I like the sexual ethics of the Bible. Are you with me? I, I don't forgive others because I like to forgive others. I, I do that because I believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I believe in the commandments of Scripture are good for me, even when my flesh and my mind fight against them because I know the one who wrote them rose from the dead and I'm going to trust the one who rose in victory. And so I'm going to submit my flesh I'm going to submit my way of thinking to Christ and say, if you rose from the dead, if that historic reality took place, then that's my objective truth. But here's the reality. If Christianity is only objective, it's not Christianity. It's not about head knowledge. It's about the new birth. It's about taking the truth of Christ and making it alive to your heart. You know, the psalmist says, I meditate on His Word day and night, and here's why. You ready? Because His Word is my ice cream. His Word is a burrito. It's my delight. It's food. It's something that, that I don't just study. It brings me joy. It brings me excitement. It brings me life. I delight in the law of God. That's not objective. That's subjective. And He's saying, though you have not seen Him, here's the reality of Christianity. If we're not pressing into God, into Christ, then the idea of God's love will not change us. You know, I've heard a lot of people say, you know, God is loving. That's His job. He has to do it. Have you heard that? I mean, of course God's going to forgive me. He has to do that. But here's the reality. That kind of love will never change you. But you know, the love that changes you is when God doesn't give you what you deserve. He gives you what He deserves. And He takes that suffering upon Himself. That leads to a joy that I realize, look at the debt I've been forgiven. No one can sin against me that much. And see, that joy that God's given me allows me now to be forgiving, loving, to set my needs aside and to die daily and take up my cross and follow Jesus. Objective truth, the resurrection. Second, what's our anchor? It's the new birth. And then finally, in verses 10 through 12, listen, and we'll close with this. We have to learn to read the Bible. And to learn to read the Bible is a story not about you. It's not about you. I'm sorry. It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. B-I-B-L-E. It's not. The story of the gospel is God's story. And so notice where Paul concludes. He says we're anchored in the resurrection and the new birth. Then he says in verse 10, concerning the salvation, the prophets, and the prophets refer to the Old Testament, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. What did the prophets talk about? You want a summary of the prophets? Notice where Peter, what, he, what does he say? What the prophets spoke about was grace to come. You know, Jesus summarized all the commandments in one, love the Lord your God. Peter just summarized all the prophets in one. They talked about the grace to come. And they searched intently. It says, and with the greatest query, in, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the, sub and the subsequent glories. When you read Hosea, when you read Daniel, when you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, what are they talking about? He tells us. 
He says right here, when they predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. See, they were looking forward to the grace that was to come. That Jesus isn't a New Testament concept. Salvation by grace through faith and not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one can boast. That's an Old Testament idea. That the story of the Old Testament talks about grace to come. The story of the New Testament talks about the grace that has come. And so he says in verse 12, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you. That's the New Testament. Who are those that preach the gospel to you? The apostles. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James. Those are the ones that have preached the gospel to us by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Jesus is the center of the Old Testament. He's the center of the New Testament. Which means that we grow not by trying harder, but by trusting more. And realize the conclusion He takes us to, and this is amazing, I promise I'm going to end with this. I'm excited. Angels long to look into these things. Into what things? I'll tell you, if angels are longing to look into something, it's not simply knowledge. Angels know everything. They live in the presence of God. But you know what angels don't have the opportunity to do in the presence of God? is to go through suffering to turn their hearts on the gospel of Jesus Christ and allow the strength of faith to come in and to build them up into new life. Angels have no idea what, it, what it's like to trust Him when everything else around you says, don't trust Him. When your flesh says, hey, don't trust Him, go for comfort. You know, keep arguing, win the argument. When everything in us says, don't, or go this direction, don't submit to God, the angels have no idea. They look at us and they marvel us at us, at the opportunity we have to live by faith. Because when you live by faith, the angels rejoice. Because they see something that is indescribable and full of glory. They see Christ in you, the hope of glory. We have the opportunity in this life, in Evergreen, in the community in which you live, at the job in which you are at, to allow Christ to work through you. And I'll tell you, for people in this, this life where they're going to see Christ in you is when you're going through challenges, when you're at work, and what's happened to you is unfair, but instead of just living for rights, you live for Christ, and you sacrifice your needs for what will promote the gospel, and you live by grace in a community that would live for rights or will live for, for victory. You live for God. That's a testimony. Church, why are we here? See, we gather together in community. We gather on Sunday so that we might remind ourselves of the hope that we have, and that hope is in Christ. And that we might go out into the world and say, you know, I, hey, listen, there's a lot of great things in, in this life. And the good things that God has given us, He wants us to enjoy, don't get me wrong. But He has a joy that is indescribable, that does not pass away, that does not fade, and it's the joy of faith in God through Jesus Christ. It's the joy of the gospel. And as we gather as a community centered on Jesus, what God wants to produce through us is something that we can't produce on our own so that this community might see the wisdom, might see the grace, and might see the truth of the God that we serve. Hey, let me pray for us. And as I do, I want to encourage you just to invite the Spirit of God to, to, to stir your heart and to say, what are the things that I'm trusting in? 
Where is my hope going to that is not Christ? And would you, you know, God in His grace, it's His kindness that leads us to repentance and just admit, you know, Father, these are the things that are too important. When I'm suffering, these are the things I'm running to. Lord, would you show me that you are sufficient to meet my needs in my hour of trouble? So let me pray for us. Father, I just thank you. Father, your word is counterintuitive. It's not where we start. It's we come to it and we think we grasp. We, we think we see, Father, and we think we understand, and yet you're calling us to humble ourselves. And Lord, just to evaluate in my life, when hard times come, what do I run to? What is it that I find will be the solution to my problems? Lord, Father, would you show us the things that we're turning to to be our Savior? Now, it may not be Savior for heaven, but it's Savior for money. Or it's Savior for tomorrow. It's Savior for business. It's Savior for life. Lord, only you can save us in our families and in our health and in life. So, Father, we we submit to you and ask, Lord, that whatever we're experiencing today, Would your truth be sweet to us? And Lord, would you lead us in a path of righteousness for your glory and your namesake? And Father, show us mercy. I pray for those that are here today that are going through the valley of the shadow of death. Father, would you remind them that you're with them and would you show them the mercy that you poured out from the cross? For only you can take that which is dead and make it alive again. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.